Welcome to the show, everyone. We have a very special guest for you today. He is a martial arts master, stunt and fight coordinator, and he has worked with some of the best films and TV shows. Welcome to the show, the amazing Stephen Ho. Hello, sir. Oh, hey, Tom. How are you? So good to see you again. Oh, great to see you too, man. Thanks for taking time to do the show. Long time no see, man. It's been, I don't know, like three years or something. Yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, was that, I guess, COVID? Yeah, like whatever that was, a uh, lockdown. Around there, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just want to jump right into it because you have an interesting perspective on things. Also, your martial arts training helped pave a way for a film and TV career as well. So first and foremost, I think you start off with karate and like for the first eight years of training was Richard King Sensei. You kind of go into your beginnings and go into NASCA champion. Yeah, sure. I started with Richard King, who has a studio called the Karate Institute of America. And when I started, it was a Kenpo based Polynesian Kenpo-based system at Parker System. And so I did that for about eight years and then started branching off and, you know, gently recruited me into the film business. And then I started working with him. And then, you know, then I was became one of the original Ninja Turtles for part two and part three and Mortal Kombat and blah, blah, blah. But being inside the stunt world really gave me an opportunity to meet so many different talented, you know, martial artists and fighters and stunt people. And then, you know, it's just, it's just the natural thing that happens. You all get together and you start training and, and trading knowledge. And I think that's when my, uh, I guess my openness for martial arts really, really kicked in because it was like, wow, look at this guy. What's Capoeira? I've never seen that before. Cause you gotta remember this was back then when we didn't have Instagram, you can't just instantly see what's going on. You see some guy doing Capoeira, you're like, what is that? You yeah. know, what is that? What is that? You know, it's so, and then you just, you know, you look through the magazines, you try to find some still photographs and try to figure out how they got there, you know, in that position. And it was great because it was the first time where we were actually meeting with a lot of people in the same room representing different styles. And also some people may or may not know this category, which is tricking. And you were one of the first trickers. And it's a nice extension off of your training. So when did you kind of get into that kind of style? Well, you got to remember back then there wasn't a name for it. And honestly, I wouldn't consider myself in that position. Some people say that, but I feel like there's other people, other guys after me, Carmichael, Simon, John Valera, you know, all those guys, yeah. the younger kids after me that really pushed it. I just always kind of did my thing, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just did what felt right. I learned from different people. I tried to do fancy stuff and it is what it is. And it became this whole thing called tricking. Again, not because of me, but I think I think I was one of the first guys to like start to get away from non-traditional moves. Interesting. You know, okay. And mix in some acrobatics and, and try different things. And then from there, the kids just took over. Oh, and yeah. That next generation just took over. And then the generation after that built on that. And now it's like, they look like video games. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty much anything in any of these superhero movies. It's pretty much, oh, that really cool move. That is, that is tricky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you just touched on that with Jet Li. I mean, you know, being in the first film, first feature, as like a stunt double, right? Yeah, I did a couple things. So, you know, I had no idea what I was doing. I had zero clue. I was just uh, competing at a tournament. He saw me. I got a call. And then I was in somewhere in Northern California at a random farmhouse dojo. There was an actual farmhouse dojo out okay. in the middle of nowhere. And I brought a luggage with you know they said bring clothes bring bad guy clothes so i just brought a leather jacket and my motorcycle jacket and just a bunch of stuff and then first thing i did when i walked in he was doing i don't know how many twists i mean 
was like four and a half, five, you know, just oh. crazy Hong Kong twist. And I saw him and I was like, oh my God, why am I here? Like, okay. there's no need for me to be here unless you're just going to pick me up and throw me through, you know, a window or something. And so that really was super intimidating, but just so exhilarating. And at that time, the whole other crew was a lot of the West Coast guys, so like George Chung and Scott Coker and, you know, all these really awesome legends were there, a generation above me. And so wow. during our off time, you know, we would just trade kicks and train and work with Jets crew. I guess that was really the moment where I was like, oh, shit, I don't know anything. I don't know anything, you know? <laughs> Good now. A black belt doesn't mean anything. All a black belt means is that you have your basics and then now you have an open mind to be able to learn new moves and new styles from other people much easier than you would if you were just starting and you didn't have a foundation anywhere. I love that. That's a great mindset and way to word that. I mean, I believe even the Gracie's had that for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu where like by the time you're black belt, now you start to learn Jiu-Jitsu or you have yeah. that openness. Yeah, exactly. And also, I believe around that time, you like had this kind of pathway, right? Like you were planning on going to Hong Kong and do a stuntman career there. Mm -hmm. And then until Pat Johnson yeah. sets you up for the Ninja Turtles, what was that decision-making process like for you? I mean, how did he sweet talk you into not going over there? Because you already had the Jet Li experience, of course. Yeah, it wasn't. Ex it, there was a couple things in the middle. So what happened, mm -hmm. I had the Jet Li experience, and then there was a second Jet Li film in Los Angeles with Choi Hawk was directing. Oh. called The Masters. It's notable to say that the only two Jet Li films that I've done are known to be among his two worst films that he's ever done. <laughs> it's good that I didn't continue because yeah. that may not be where he was if I would continue to be in his projects. But anyway, at that time, his manager wanted to also manage me. You know, he says, okay, Jet's going back to Hong Kong. He did the two films here. He's going to go back and do some period pieces in Hong Kong. We'd like you to, to move to Hong Kong. So at that time, I was like, okay, like, why not? What does that mean? Like, do I stay somewhere? Like, I didn't know <laughs> any of the details. And yeah. I was, you know, full loose and fancy free, but I still needed to know basic details of am I living <laughs> on the street or, you know, I could have lived in a room with 30 stunt guys and I would have been happy. I just needed to know the details. Yeah. So I went to, I wouldn't even call him a friend. It was just an older Chinese gentleman that I met on a film and we kept in touch and he spoke Chinese. He's the only guy that I knew that spoke Chinese, right? <laughs> I don't really? Chinese. <laughs> so I was like, hey, can you call Hong Kong for me? You know, and not even negotiate, just give me some information <laughs> on what's happening. And he says, well, what's going on in your life? You know, he was uh, like a mentor figure at that time. And I said, well, I worked these two films with Jet. His manager wants to manage me. He's promising me kind of big things. And I go to Hong Kong, I play a couple of stunt thugs and then they branch me off into my own film. You know, it all sounds fantastic. And then he said, great, what's going on with you here? And I said, oh, I just got an agent and I got offered a role in a Roger Corman movie with Corey Feldman. Oh, uh, high this, school. Yeah, uh, it was the sequel yeah. to Rock and Roll High School, Rock and Roll High School Forever. And he said, how long is, is your contract for? And I said, it's for the run of the show, whatever it was, two months or something. And he says, and you turn that down? And I said, yeah, because I want to move to Hong Kong. And he just like, <laughs> he, he couldn't believe what he heard. And he's like, I've been in this business for 30 years. I've never gotten more than three days work, you know, in a row. 
<laughs> and you're offered like a co-star in a film for two months, you're going to get your SAG card. He goes, if you go to Hong Kong, you don't speak the language. You think they give a shit about you? <laughs> you're, you're dispensable. You're going to end up in a hospital with no insurance, a paraplegic. He just scared the hell out of me. Okay. And looking back, he probably wasn't wrong. He went to a very bad place, like the worst case scenario. But now knowing what I know, it was an actual bad case scenario that could happen for someone like me who wasn't trained, didn't know what the hell he was doing, didn't speak the language. For sure, I would be the first guy they would throw off the roof. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. so, uh, <laughs> so I called my agent immediately and I said, hey, you know that role I passed on? I'm so, so sorry. That was the dumbest mistake of my young life. Can you please call them and ask if they would consider having me back? And they said yes. So oh, wow. I got to work on that project. And then Corey Feldman, coincidentally, was the voice of Donatello. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So they had already shot the first part with Ernie Reyes Jr., amazing yeah. martial artist, my oh, good yeah. friend. So he came in and he did that because at that time they planned on bringing all Hong Kong guys. But one of the Hong Kong guys, his wife gave him an ultimatum. It's like, you stay in the U.S., I'm done. So oh. he suddenly had to move back to Hong Kong. And then that's when they brought in Ernie. So Ernie really paved the way for us because they're like, oh, whoa, he's an American and he can do this. We thought we needed, you know, cats from Hong Kong. Interesting. So then when they did part two, they're like, okay, let's do this casting with Americans. And then I heard that was happening, you know, at the Battle of Atlanta. Yeah. So I, I basically, whatever money I had left on my credit card, I used it, got to the battle, literally, like when I say that was it. That's all I had. I had zero dollars in the bank and whatever was on my credit card. So went to the Battle of Atlanta, found some people that let me stay, sleep on their floor, met Pat. He saw me and then that was it. So that's amazing. And yeah. Ernie upgraded to Kino. So yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's amazing story. Yeah. I remember yeah, last time we talked, you still had the mask or the helmet of Donatello. What was it like performing in that suit? I mean, you had to be just sweating like crazy. Yeah, it was the kind of joke was we never went to the bathroom all day. Okay. Oh, no. Because you just sweat. You're just oh, sweating. Man. So you're just drinking, drinking, drinking water, trying to hydrate, sweat it out. During lunch breaks, you take your boot off and literally it would pour out like a pitcher of sweat. <laughs> oh. But, you know, it's, it, we all had it hard because there was the acting group, yeah. right? The guys who yeah. did the acting. And then there was the stunt group. And then there was uh, the animatronic guys who controlled the acting guys. And then there was a voiceover. So it was actually four of us to create one turtle. And oh, so man. the actors, I would always compare them to like running a marathon. They were slow and steady, but they had a heavier weight. I think probably 80 pounds. Oh, because of the headgear, right? Not the, the whole battery packed animatronics. You know, you got to remember this wow. is 1990. So it was like the, they basically had a, an entire computer in their shell, you know? So they had all that going on and they had to stay in that costume the whole day, but they weren't really moving, you know, just like minimal movements, minimal movements, but an entire day, like running a marathon, wow. we were doing wind sprints. Okay. So for us, it's yeah. like, it was a lighter costume, but it's like, but you know, like going crazy for a minute, you know, many takes and then stop, take your helmet off and you don't want to move because you just don't want to expend any energy. So literally you're just like this on your shell, just breathing. <laughs> and then we each had an assistant to give us water and to put a fan on us. 
it's literally you're just like this just breathing you know trying to make conversation and then you're up put it on boom, 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 and then <laughs> that's crazy yeah yeah <laughs> and also you show it like uh for the stunt like you had like these little slits underneath the mask right for your vision yeah they, they had little little eye slits to look through but the problem was before every take they would always close them up <laughs> so then i developed a trick where i got a piece of turtle i guess a piece of like latex yeah and i hid it inside of my mouth oh okay. so my mouth would never completely close so before every take they would try to shut my mouth but <laughs> it wouldn't close because i had that in there so you I'd could always see. jam it in so <laughs> i can look down so i'm like this so my mouth is here but i would look through the mouth and then i can see feet okay so if you yeah, see something. feet i know i know where they're standing i know the distance then I can do my moves, you know? That's crazy. Movie magic at its best. Yeah. Wasn't there a story with that? You did like a back or something and it connected? Yeah. I mean, there was a couple. I think that might have been from a different movie where I accidentally. Oh, okay. Guys teeth out. That was a different film. Oh okay. God, awful. But I got hit in the head on this one. Pat was really smart about it where we would first start by doing the rehearsals by ourselves. Okay. As ourselves. Then I think the next we would put on the whole costume, but the head. And then later we would, you know, sometimes we would do it blindfold and then we put that up. So it happened in stages, but in between stages, yeah, there was tons of accidents all the time, but it was hard to hurt us because we were literally padded up and <laughs> pretty much 40 pounds of latex, you know? And for balance, man, I mean, how did you adjust to that? It had to take a while to adjust, right? Yeah, it took a minute. I remember the first time I tried on the costume was um, in London at... Jim Henson's Creature Shop. This is, uh, I think Jim Henson may have just passed away like two weeks before or two weeks after or something. But it was, you know, I got to go to the Creature Shop and I put on the shell and I'm like, oh, cool. You know, and I went to throw a kick and I literally landed on, on the shell because the weight distribution is completely different. Your center of gravity is just is further back to your spine. So yeah. it took us all a while to get there. And yeah. then, you know, the legs were super tight, the gusset. So you try to lift your leg to throw a kick and it's like, whoo, whoo. it would, you know, just keep coming down. down like that. And sometimes we'd rip it. I mean, it was, there was a lot of R and D that was going on with the costumes while we were. While you're shooting. doing it. And pretty yeah. much inside the feet, did you have like a regular shoe or something like that? Or No, just barefoot. Oh man. Yeah. No, we wore a, like a, a white latex bodysuit. That way it would keep the sweat off the costumes because otherwise you wouldn't be able to remove it. Latex bodysuit that goes all the way over your head. So now you're dying already, right? And then they just load you up with baby powder. And then you slide on, you know, put your, your pants on first and your feet and then your shoulder and then your arms and then the knee pads and elbow pads <laughs> and then your shoulders, like a football shoulder strap and then your head. That was the order. I'll tell you what, I mean... Having the and practical the effects, yeah. yeah, and of course the shell. Having the practical effects brings that much more magic. I mean, obviously you had the suffrage through it, but it brings so much more. But nowadays you'd be in a motion caption suit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're in an AC room with like strawberry water, you know? <laughs> These kids don't know how good they have it. They uh, don't. They don't. They don't. <laughs> also, they would always spritz us with mm -hmm. water and sometimes I think baby oil to give it that reptile feel, which I thought was always a nice touch. By the way, when I saw this in Mortal Kombat, the first live-action Mortal Kombat movie, you wanted to see more backstory of Chen, your character you played, uh, Luke Cage's yeah. brother. 
How did you land that? Was it also from Pat Johnson because he choreographed? No, I, I got or? in through the acting route. I went through, I think I, I went full-time actor mode for about a oh. year, maybe a year, year and a half, where I was lucky and I got a bunch of guest starring roles. I got to guest star in Walker, Texas Ranger and oh, yeah. Nash Bridges and High Tide, you know, these random 90s shows. And then I auditioned for Mortal Kombat and I did that. Then my agent called and they're like, well, they love your acting. They have one concern. And I said, what's the concern? They said, they need to make sure that you can learn martial arts for the role. And I said, oh, I said, don't worry. I'm good with that. Because I didn't, <laughs> like, I think because I, I was pursuing the acting route, I didn't talk about my martial arts. Oh, I see. Okay. You know, to people, because I just didn't want to, I don't know, stupid, but... I was like, ah, it's different. I didn't want to be thought of as a stunt guy who can act. I'm like, I want to be thought of as an actor. I'm a thespian, you know? You're right. stupid 20s <laughs> shit. So I said, yeah, no problem. I'm good with that. I was more than okay. good with that. <laughs> yeah, can you do a demonstration in front of the the director and the producer and the stunt coordinator? I'm like, yeah, great. Who's the stunt coordinator? I'm like, Johnson. I'm like, okay, I'll be fine. Don't worry. I'll yeah. be fine with this. So. Yeah, we're already good here. <laughs> That's awesome. That's yeah. a cool insight to that story. But I do see because you had one leg of the career so far and wanted to branch into that other aspect of it. And I definitely want to go into this because you wrote and directed Sound Man and mm -hmm. um, had a great cast as well. Uh, and soundtrack, many people didn't know, but Guns N' Roses had uh, broken up and kind of got together again for the soundtrack for this, correct? Yeah, everyone but Axel. It was kind of pretty historic. We actually threw yeah. a party, which was pretty amazing. It was like, Slash was like playing at our party, you know, it was pretty cool. What was that like transitioning into the next realm of your career of writing and directing and things like that? What was that like for you? You know, for me, it was, it was a blast. It was fun. It was fun up until we finished it. So when we, oh. you know, the whole creative process was great, but then in trying to sell it and the whole thing, it was just so stressful for me. And I kind of told myself, I said, I don't know if I can continue to do this. You know, oh, like, oh, really? I don't know if I can continue. I just didn't have it in me to pursue a new career and have to worry about eating. Yeah. So I wanted to just come back to it and say, you know, when I'm in a position of no stress where I don't have to worry about getting a job in order to feed people and I can just do it for fun without stress that's when I would come back to it. So, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been working on another project that I want to direct that I already wrote. And, oh, um, cool. And now we're going, well, you know, been going out with it. We've been getting close a couple of times, but I'm in not a stressful position to hurry. I don't need to get it done tomorrow. When it connects with the right people, we'll get it done. We'll do it right. And it'll be a fun time. And another one of my favorite things you did was the Conan O'Brien segments were always yeah. exciting to do. Man, this guy really, uh, he went for it with you, huh? Yeah, Conan's the real deal, I have to say. Probably, I'd have to say that out of everything I've ever done, doing the shows with him is the highlight of my career for wow. me. Just for the Just for the experience of it. You know, because again, it's, I always like to try something new that I'm not familiar with. And that's where I get the excitement. You know, it's yeah. like learning new styles of martial arts. It's the same thing. You get sick of doing the same forms over and over and over. You want to yeah. learn something new. You know, so it's like, for me, it was like, oh, comedy. That was just kind of a scary field for me. But working with him for, you know, how many years we worked on, 
I felt like I, I got an honorary, you know, master's degree in improv and comedy. And I learned so much from him and that team of producers of information that I'm, I'm still using today. Wow. You know? Yeah. The best. And he's like the best with people and allowing you to be creative and things like that as well. And I believe what was one of his, uh, like, you didn't know how far can we push it with him. And I think, wasn't it like one of his big things? Like, Hey man, as long as it's on camera. Yeah. So <laughs> in the very beginning, they brought me in early during the tonight show days. He had, hmm. I don't know if you remember the whole thing, but he left late night oh, yeah, that was... to do the tonight show. And then he did that for like a, a couple of weeks or a month. And then Jay Leno was like, no, I changed my mind. I want it back. Yeah, yeah, but... and you know it was a kind of a disaster. But for the first couple of shows of the Tonight Show, you know it's the Tonight Show, right? Yeah, it's like there's Johnny Carson, and then now it's Conan, and now I'm on the Tonight Show. It's like what yeah. the heck? Yeah. And so I worked with my producer Rachel on what we were going to do, and a part of it was him going through a plate glass, you know, to go through a window on a wire and the whole thing, and there was all these safety talks and can he get hurt and this and that? Can you guarantee that he's not going to get hurt? And You're... <laughs> I'm like, I can't. Like, yeah. we were taking all the best precautions. I can't see that he would get hurt by what we're doing, but there's no guarantee in stunts. There's just no guarantees. Across the board, yeah. I, you know, can you cross the street? Can you guarantee you're not going to get hit by a car when you cross the street? No, and no one should guarantee that for you because you don't know what's going to happen. So we went back and forth on the whole thing. And then finally he had to step in because I was talking to the universal safety team and their freaking lawyers. And oh, it's like, wow. this is, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say or do. So he stepped into the meeting and he's like, okay, listen guys, if I break a finger, I'm good. I can take it to that point. I can break my finger and I'm fine. So anything under that, totally fine. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's cool. I can do a lot. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a finger. I mean, that's that's a lot. So it was great. He did that, and then everyone signed on board for the first show. I kind of sucker punched him because yeah. I thought it'd be kind of funny, and I hit him hard. I hit him really hard because I figured, oh, I'm not going to break a finger, you know? Yeah, right. So yeah, <laughs> I hit him pretty hard, and then he kind of like, I mean, you can see the footage; it's out there somewhere. He had a weird look, and then he looked at me, and then the audience went crazy, and then he <laughs> loved it. And then he called me back the next morning and booked me to come back on in like wow. a short period of time. I think it was like just two weeks later or something like that. So that's amazing. That, that was it. That was the beginning. And that's from then on every episode, the gag was that he would get hit for real at some point, but he didn't want to know when. So I would always that was a real say, reaction. He wanted it real. And I would always say, would you mind? can I put a pad on you around your liver? You know? <laughs> and he's like, nope, I'm all good. Just don't do it to me during rehearsal. And if the cameras are rolling, I'm fine. Man, <laughs> this trooper. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I've left him with bruises. I've definitely left him with, <laughs> like I went for it. And I think that's why it worked. That's why the show worked. You know, it's the tonight show. It's Conan O'Brien and you get there and, you know, obviously I have so much respect for him, but I tried not to show the respect. And every time I got in the show, I would imagine that it's my show. Yeah. He, he's the guest on my show. That so chemistry in, that made it really, yeah, yeah, made it really work. And I think that's what played off it because I wasn't intimidated by him. I was inside, but on the outside, I acted like I wasn't intimidated. I was acting like I was in charge. And I think that's where the dynamic happened. It was like, hey, I'm the host of the show, not you. 
And that's why we had our back and forth that I think just worked so well. Oh, and he played back and forth with Giannis so well. It was always uh, you know, my favorite segments when that would happen. It was always magical. So it was always yeah. great. Thank you. I also want to touch on this too, because you had a very interesting story. You and your family coming to the U.S., you had a unique story, especially around that era and being Asian in America. You kind of touch base what your early days were like with that, because I thought it was very inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was born in Indonesia. I'm Chinese. My parents were Chinese at that time. And still to this date, Chinese aren't wholly welcomed in Indonesia to the point that you're not allowed to have a Chinese name. You're not allowed to have a Chinese last name, even to today. Like you cannot have a Chinese name in Indonesia. You know, it's the whole religious thing and the, the language. Like it's, it was a no-no. And like I said, even today, it's questionable. Yeah. So my dad was a research scientist for the university. And he tells stories of how, you know, he would often get just beat up or by soldiers. And when he would walk down the street, he'd look down or wear a hat so they couldn't see his eyes. Wow. And then he had the opportunity to go to Germany to school to get his master's degree. And he said that was the first time where he realized that, hey, they're not looking at me. No one's beating me up, you know? So he's like, oh, we got to get out of here. Yeah. Because he realized the world is different from outside of this bubble. Island of Java, the world is different. So he wrote a bunch of letters, I believe, like, you know, hand letters to organizations around the world asking for help for a political asylum. And there was a group, I believe it was called something like the United World Church Services or something to that effect, where it was many religions of churches coming together to help refugees. And he got a hold of them and they responded that they would love to help to get us either to Los Angeles or somewhere in the Midwest. I'm not sure where. And he picked Los Angeles. And so a Presbyterian church in Southgate sponsored us. And we came here when I was four, not knowing the language. My parents brought a suitcase full of books, $200. And then the first rule, my dad said, okay, we got to fast track this. We don't have time. We have to fast track this. So from now on, we're speaking English only until we master this language enough to survive. So it was interesting because I don't speak any Indonesian. My parents stopped speaking Indonesian and completely no Chinese. And then just started speaking English. And, you know, I learned how to speak really through watching TV. I think like... A, That's a big t learning tool, really. Yeah. Yeah. The Three Stooges was a big one. My first English sentence was for Mission Impossible. Danger is my business. That was my first sentence. Ironically. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Hey, look at you now. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that was, you know, that was it. Wow, that's wow! It's so unbelievable because yeah, a lot of people just stay within their, like you said, this little bubble, and you don't know. And some people never even travel outside, but let alone yeah. move. That, that that's just such an amazing it's thing. A, it's a you know, I don't know honestly if it was me, I don't know if I would have had the cojones to do that. You know, my dad married with a kid, a four year old. Uh, you know, knowing that once you leave, especially back then, once you leave, you can't come back. You can't escape a country as a professor <laughs> yeah. and then come back on vacation. No. So knowing that you're not going to see your family again, like that's it. You, that's you're, so you're choosing a new home where you don't know where you're going. Whew. I mean, at that time, I didn't realize because you're just a kid, you're going with the flow. Right. But what they were going through at that time, oh my God, I can't even imagine feeling that right now. Yeah. That's yeah, absolutely unreal. 
Yeah, it's so wild. And yeah, going through your whole childhood, up like we cover with martial arts and into your film and TV career and, and so on and so forth. Now you have the Twinjas. You have Johnny yeah. and Ali. Also, everyone should check out the Twinjas Instagram and social media. Always posting some great things. And there's some, they're doing some like real like ninja warrior stuff, bro. I, <laughs> yeah, and you're cross training so well. I mean, obviously you know how to train, but you and the coaches and how you run them, it's really admirable as well. Like the way you run things, Can you kind of go into your concepts of training with them. So I had a lot of stress about how to train them from when my wife was pregnant. Like literally I would be stressing out okay. at night, you know, about part of being an older dad, you know, cause my wife and I were together for 15 years before we decided to get pregnant. Wow. Right. So wow, okay, part of yeah. being an older dad is that you have, I'm not having to worry as much about getting my foundation in my career, you know, the, the beginnings of my career and all that. So I have a little more free time to just like stew in my brain, you know? And so yeah, it yeah. was, I just didn't know how to start them. And I'm like, okay, well, what did I do? What did I do? I started in one style. I, I hate to say the word mastered it, but I, to the point where I got good at the basics. So for eight years, and then I relearned how to kick a different way. And then I relearned how to punch a different way, you know? So from Taekwondo to boxing and then, oh, oh what's this thing called Muay Thai? Oh, that's a little bit different. Now I have to relearn that way. So maybe that's the way to do it. Maybe you get a foundation in something like a lot of the MMA fighters, you get a foundation and then you branch off, right? So I'm like, yeah. okay, well, what's the foundation then? What am I gonna do? For me, the best discipline is going to be a Taekwondo program because you jump in the program and immediately you have your code, you have your school code, the honor system, the whole thing, you know, this is why you're doing this. You're, you get in line, you better be perfect. Don't talk back. Like that's perfect for discipline, but okay, maybe for practical fighting other than a Taekwondo tournament, it's not gonna be as right effective. That or do I do what I believe is the most effective art? For kids and start them in jujitsu right away right you know but right. then there's there's zero striking you know it's like you see these awesome you know jujitsu guys and then you see them throw a kick and punch you're like oh yeah you know That's zero pretty striking. Rough, yeah. so what do i do what do i do and then i thought about it and it's like you know how kids learn how to speak multiple languages mm. all the time some kids grow up learning how to speak three different languages and they get confused around age four or five, but then when it clicks in, it clicks in. And then yeah. now they're fluent in three languages. And so I started thinking about like, are kids smart enough to do that? Why not? You play ball sports, you know the difference between a basketball and a football and a baseball, they're all balls. They all have different rules, but you know. So it was kind of a fun experiment for me to try to put them in different things at the same time. So my plan was to start in grappling because they can go full contact and grappling. They can right. go full contact and grappling. They're still friends at the end. They can compete, they can go hard. They're not gonna get concussed, no issue at all. So we started jujitsu and wrestling at the same time. But oh, cool. not okay. a combination, not mm -hmm. like for MMA. Wrestling class, jujitsu class. Wrestling class, jujitsu class. Kept it completely separate. And then I would mess around with them for fun, you know, just hitting mitts, but really, that was more of like, let's play catch. I didn't want to take it seriously because I just felt like they had to be a little bit in order to be able to strike responsibly, you know? 
Gotcha. So they took a liking to both jujitsu and wrestling. And then around COVID time, the wrestling kind of slowed down a little bit. So we did yeah. more jujitsu. And then when they hit around nine or so, they're like, oh, we want to start. Oh, no, we took them boxing too. We would go boxing okay. as well. But really no sparring, just like learning combinations. And then as they got around nine last year or so, they're like, we want to try MMA. Wow. Okay. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know? So we started, you know, no head contact, no head contact. So we started doing MMA and they just fell in love with it because now they're like putting everything together. Awesome. And so, um, two weeks ago they did their first Muay Thai tournament under Muay Thai rules. Oh, uh, they love tomorrow that, they're doing their first boxing tournament, straight boxing oh. rules, no head contact for either. And then in July they have hopefully their first MMA matches with up next. So, and they've wow. done judo. They do judo tournaments too. And then they do capoeira exclusively. So wow, for me, man. it's like we let them do different arts in their pure form. Pure form. So yes, not, that's a great point. Not MMA where you can say, oh, I do judo for MMA or I do boxing for MMA. I do this for MMA. A little bit different. It's fantastic, but a little bit different. I want them to get the pureness of things, you know, then they can yeah. put it together themselves and what works for them. But That's right amazing. now, in its pure form, it's jujitsu, wrestling, striking, and capoeira. Those are the four bases. And then from there, we branch off. And they do judo tournaments. Like, they'll do a judo tournament every once or twice a year, even though they don't really practice judo, just for fun. You know? So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a, just, yeah. Just for fun. Literally, just for fun. They love competing. So just for fun, they'll enter a judo tournament. And there's no... It doesn't matter. They don't practice judo. So if they lose, it doesn't matter. If they win, it's like, oh, yeah, we did it. You know, just totally for fun. That's an amazing regimen. And it keeps it playful and, and there's nothing too serious. Not to mention they're set up to do a bit of everything that comes their way. They don't burn out. I think it's. Yeah. I think the, the important thing is like, I'm sure you know, I'm sure you've seen it. You see all these, you know, I, I grew up with so many phenomenal kids who are like way better than me. And they peak like this. Boom. They peak like that. And yeah. then the faster you peak is the faster you're going to drop and the bigger that drop is. So it was really important to me to not let them peak too fast and to like let them peak a slow and steady route, slow and steady. And yeah. I think for us personally, one way to do that is by mixing in different styles. So you're playing different games. Wrestling, yeah. it's a fight game, just like jujitsu is a fight game. There's different strategies and how to play and how to win. Boxing is a different game. And so it just really keeps them thinking and engaged. And then now it's like, oh, we want to work today. Then it's awesome because like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to jujitsu or I can call some of your friends you can wrestle or do you want to do stand up with me? And then they'll say, oh, let's do Muay Thai today. And they'll get on a kick for like a month where it's like Muay Thai heavy, Muay Thai heavy. But then we still go to wrestling and jujitsu. We'll still go. But the, the extra time is for Muay Thai or sometimes extra time is going to be for jujitsu. But it's always a thirst for more knowledge. Right. That's, and that's to me, the key. That, that's our goal as coaches, as parents, as mentors, is to give children that thirst for knowledge. Not to give them the knowledge as fast as you can, but to give right. them that thirst to last them for the rest of their lives. So they don't peak like this and then just <laughs> calm yeah, out. Yeah, right. You know? That's absolutely amazing. And I bet with Johnny Nolly, watch out every once in a while. They're going after dad. So. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't, we used to... They, we do this body shot challenge where they, you know, start off just hit them hitting you. It's like, okay, no problem, right? 
then them kicking you, it's like, okay, this is a little bit of a problem. And then now they're throwing knees. I can't, like, I can't, I can't take the knees anymore. They crack one of my friend's ribs. Oh, yeah, no. it's like, like, yeah. Oh, no. Like, literally, only professional fighters can take the challenge and do well. If you're not a pro fighter, and you're not in that shape, you're gonna hurt yourself. They're gonna they're gonna destroy you. <laughs> At 10 years old, 50 pounds, they'll kill you with that yeah. knee, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely amazing. Yeah, I would love to have the boys on and kind of get their yeah, side of perspective on you know, as kids coming up with it, and, and that way other parents can hear and not just martial arts, right? Just any activity. They're doing the same thing. They peak and it can be basketball, baseball yeah. too much. I mean, I find that a lot of the kids who burn out their parents don't actually do that sport. You know, oftentimes it's the parents who like, maybe they've never fought before, but they've always wanted to do martial arts. They always had a friend who they admired who did martial arts and they know that it's good for their kid, but then they don't understand that you got to like, let it stew, you know? You yeah. Gotta let it simmer a little bit. You got to take your time with it. You got an entire life with it. Same That's thing a with, great you know, takeaway. Soccer, soccer moms and dads and baseball. You know, people, they take it too seriously, I feel, you know. You got to keep oh, it fun for, sure. for kids. And as we're wrapping up on this, man, it's been so awesome catching up with you. I always like <clears> to end <throat> off, like, what are kind of future goals you have? You know, right now, like, the majority of my focus is on my kids. So they're going to be on America's Got Talent coming up. Oh, awesome. Which is awesome. Yeah, that's coming up in the next few weeks. So really, for me, there's no bigger reward than sharing the knowledge that I have and then also learning new knowledge along with them. Like, that bond, the coach dad thing can be a complete disaster, right? right. Yeah, I've but seen it. Yeah. If you do it right, it's the sweetest thing in the world. Yeah. And yeah. so I'm just loving that. I'm loving it. I continue my training. I continue training with them. I'm just loving the experience from a place of no stress, just literally a place of learning only where we don't care about the medals. We don't care about if you win or lose. Just have the experience and then let's talk about the experience later. If I can give it a takeaway to any of the parents at home, yeah. don't worry about the trophies. Let them value the experience. That should be the value. Like, yeah, you did it. What did it feel like? Don't worry about this $2 piece of metal that you just got. Process, the process, the process, process, process. Value yeah. that. Value that more than anything else. Yeah, and the kids do too, right? I mean, that's uh, the most important yeah. factor. Yeah, I think um, there was a couple times where they left their medals in the car just accidentally. And I was so proud of that Yeah, because I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm watching, right? So they left their medals in the car. When they get home, I love it. Mom says, how did it go? And whether they win or lose, they're like, oh, it went great. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, And that was it. So I'm like, yeah, that's the answer I want. I don't want the answer, oh, it sucked because I lost. Or it went great because I won. Right. It went okay because I got second. It was eh because I got third. It shouldn't be like that. It should be the experience was fantastic. Whether I win or lose, I'm going to learn something from it. You know, that's what you should crave. Crave the experience. Like going on vacation, crave the experience. You don't go on vacation, you come back and say, look at this t-shirt I got from Milan. You know, yeah. you don't care about that keychain. It's about the experience you had in Milan, you know? And what also is amazing about this, I mean, we're obviously talking about, you know, the kids side of it, but I think adults can learn from this conversation as well. Yeah. They get two in their own head. And it needs to be more playful. 100%. You have to have fun, right? Yeah, what are we doing here? Yeah. If it's not fun, I mean, there's a time for discipline. 
and there's a time for fun, but you can't just be, if you're completely disciplined, 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 disciplined without the fun, you're going to burn out. Yep. You're going to burn out. Yeah. Burnout plateau or whatever verbiage you want to use. Man, Steven, this has been amazing catching up with you. Nice seeing you again. Man. We'll see you soon. You got it. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Warrior's Edge podcast. For more great talks and interviews on all things martial arts, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ever in our area, you're welcome to come in and train with us at our academy, Olympus Grappling Arts. Until the next one, keep listening and keep training.